This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara ong co-host. Also co-hosting today is Abe Goldberg. Hi, Abe. How are you, Kara? I am ready for this year to be over. How about you? <laughs> you know, I was just thinking that, in fact, before we started recording, I think I made the comment, has anybody said, I want this election season to be longer? We need a longer election season. I, I have not seen that other than from political consultants. <laughs> Everybody else is sort of done, right? I, I think we're done. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> November 3rd. We're, we're recording in our quote unquote studio, which means our conference room. And we are going to have a conversation with some JMU students today about civil discourse. Joining us in our studio is Wyatt Blevins. He is a junior majoring in political science and public policy and administration. And he's also chairman of College Republicans. Thanks for joining us, Wyatt. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Hope we get to have a nice conversation and a uh, civil conversation about civil discourse. We also have with us Robbie Gruberger, who happens to be Wyatt's roommate. He is also a junior majoring in history and political science, and he's also a member of the Young Democratic Socialists of America at JMU. So just to be clear, you two, Robbie and Wyatt, are roommates, chair of College Republicans, and member of the Young Democratic Socialists of America at JMU. Am I hearing that correctly? Uh, you are hearing that 100% correctly. And you all like each other? For the most part, on most days. Yeah. <laughs> For the most part, we decide to live with each other. So most days, most We also have with us Emily Baker. She is a senior majoring in political science and English, and she's also one of JMU Civic's Campus Vote Project Democracy Fellows. And she's also in my elections class this semester. Hi, Emily. Hello. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So we are here today to talk about uh, civil discourse, uh, free speech, civility, uh, respectful political debate, really in the context of a pretty divisive time in our country. And we often think about ways in which these macro level, um, the macro level discourse can um, influence the way in which people interact with each other at a micro level. I mean, especially here as we're all in this room together and. and Robbie and Wyatt as roommates. Um, you know, to me, one of the strengths of JMU has always been that there's a lot of different people representing a lot of different perspectives here. And so, you know, we're being challenged. And so what I'd like to do first is ask, you know, what, what does civil discourse mean to you? What, what is that? Yeah, so I think that um, one of the most important things in our in our republic is that we are civil with people who disagree. Um, the whole point is that, you know, we all have elections, we have these contentious debates about policy and, you know, politics in general, and then election day rolls around and afterwards we all come together and we're Americans again. Um, we're not enemies, we're uh, almost like political rivals. We're not supposed to be adversaries. Um, and in the end, we're all on the same team. We're still after the same goal. Our goal is for you know, America to be a better place. It's for us to advance policies that help people. And I think that the reason civil discourse is important is because oftentimes, especially in the era of like social media and everything, we kind of lose 
that personal connection with people and we forget that just because somebody thinks differently than we do, it doesn't mean that they hate us or we should hate them. If more people were to see things that way, our country would be better off. We're in a really polarized era right now. If we could all just take a moment, maybe if we don't have friends that are on the other side of the aisle, try and find some. Talk to people that disagree with you. Don't immediately run into you know, debates about their character and things like that. Talk about policy, but also you know, politics shouldn't be your life. You should, you should have other things. So just because you disagree with somebody politically doesn't mean you should you know, cut them out of your life simply because they disagree with you. And I would follow up on that, that civil discourse to me, while it does encompass all those things, it also remains with the attitude of politeness and doesn't descend into a pure argument or a fight that we've seen from presidential candidates from the past two cycles. And it's something that, as Americans, we do need to realize that we need to have actual civilized debates to find our differences and to move this country in a better place and to find compromise between, like Wyatt said, Democrats, Republicans, independents, every American, no matter of political party. Yeah, I think it's super important as well. Um, I think there's a really big difference between a fundamental disagreement on public policy, which is essentially what this is, and like, and it shouldn't be painting someone as an awful person for disagreeing with you. Um, I am surrounded by people in my life that are on the other side of the aisle, and it's great. We love to talk about political issues, and at the end of the day, we can still say that like we love each other and this is just a fundamental disagreement in public policy and we can still work together. And I think as things have gotten more and more polarized and personal on Facebook and in many other places, these attacks are getting a lot more personal and a lot less idea-based. You know, it's interesting because I think as we sit in this room, it, it sounds simple enough. Be kind, be respectful, don't personalize attacks, but then I think about how high the stakes are with public policy right now, right? We're living in a time where we're facing a, a, a persistent pandemic. Um, we know that there are challenges with immigration um, on the border, certainly, and families being separated. We know that there is racial and social injustice that has really been a signature feature of this country since the founding. And much of that discourse has been kind of elevated to cities all over this country over the summer. These are hard issues, and we're dealing with life and death, and we're dealing with people's dignity. How can you have these conversations with people who might disagree with you on policy issues when we think about specifically how hard these issues are and the real-world impact that they have on so many good people out there? Being someone who has had in-depth discussions with Wyatt on multiple issues, it made it easier to realize that you're not going to change the person's mind no matter how hard you try. And it's better to try to see how they think from their perspective and their experiences and what made them think the way they are. And then you could try to go and talk about policy again to see why they think about whatever policy that way. For example, 
gun rights was something as someone from New York was very a foreign concept to me. But coming down to James Madison University, it has opened my eyes to a different lifestyle of hunting. Seeing that perspective, it changed my mind and the fact that not everyone will think like you. And it comes down to you have to accept that because it is a part of life. I think like on these more deeply personal issues, I think it can be really easy to paint the other side with a broad brush until you sit down and talk to them. Because a lot of times people who disagree with you aren't opposed. Yeah, I think it's just like that some people aren't opposed to societal change. They just want it to happen at a slower pace. I also think one of the big things we have to learn is that not to paint everyone with a broad brush because oftentimes, you know, the people that make the news are often the ones who are the loudest and the most bombastic, but it doesn't mean that they speak for the majority of people of a party. So, you know, in our current political climate, if you're a Republican, you're a racist. If you're a Democrat, you're a communist. That's really not true, but that's kind of, you know, how it's perceived. If you, you know, you look into it, most Democrats are not super far to the left. Most Republicans are not super far to the right. The majority of America is actually in the middle, and we all kind of, I think, should learn that we agree on more things than we disagree on, but we spend all of our time going after each other for the things that we disagree with. I think we all agree that everyone should be treated equally, America should be a welcoming place. We all disagree about how we reach those points, but we need to understand that just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean they're evil. And I've been told that I'm evil by people that I used to be friends with. And I'm not friends with them anymore because they think I'm evil, because I'm a Republican. And I think that that kind of discourse, and I bring it back to the social media thing again, because you know, I think like 25% of America is on Twitter, and we think that that represents the views of the entire nation, and it certainly does not. And I think that, especially college students, we're one of the biggest groups that are on social media. We could definitely make a concerted effort to be less divisive and hateful on social media towards people that disagree with us. We could be, college students in particular, could be the driving force to end this kind of rhetoric. I think there's there's a point to be made about the role of the media in all of this and social media, right? That it's, that one of the, and we know this from scholarly research, that one of the biggest biases in the media is towards the most dramatic. And so it's kind of social media and the news media are amplifying you know, what will catch people's attention. <laughs> and, and so that means that it is more negative, right? So we, we also know that negative information actually is not necessarily a bad thing, particularly when in, an election contest, uh, in, in an election contest, because it actually can be more informative to voters. The problem becomes what I think you all have identified as when it becomes personal, right? And the, and the attacks become personal. And, we, we've seen this in the rise, you know, Pew Research Center, uh, Dr. Abramowitz and Stephen Webster have documented the rise of negative partisanship. And, you know, that we see not just the other party as an opposition, but that they're actually threats to the country, right? And, and that is kind of, you know, so much of this work is interpersonal, right? Like we can sit in this room and have this conversation but it's really hard to have, especially during a pandemic, <laughs> um, you know, to, to de-escalate that rhetoric, to de-escalate the role of, of the media and social media, particularly when we're having to be physically distant in this moment. So I wonder what ideas you all are thinking about for maybe trying to 
repersonalize, rehumanize <laughs> the the you know folks that may disagree with us on particularly you know whether it's on on policy issues or especially policy issues, but but some other issues. I think discussing the role of the media in this is super important, and there's legitimate problems with a lot of the analysis-based news that's coming at us today. But I think the real crux of the situation comes from when a lot of the people on either side of the aisle think that news is just not true or like fake news. I think that's a real problem. I think in the way that we've been losing a lot of local journalist outlets um, or like local media outlets is super is harmful for our country because people are like losing the more personal touches on their media. And as media becomes more consolidated and nationalized, it's more polarized as well. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. And um, I think another big step that people can take in, you know, growing and, you know, having more of a conversation instead of a, a heated argument is that surround yourself with people that don't agree with you. And then also always vet the news that you get. Do not just see an article on Twitter, retweet it, and go, this is, you know, this is it. This is what happened. And then a, two days later, it comes out that's not what happened. <laughs> um, it's completely different. Your tweet got, you know, this tweet got 50,000 retweets, then this one got 1,000, but this is the real story, that's the fake story. Um, don't sensationalize your news. Try and be as fair and honest as possible. Even if it doesn't coincide with your own beliefs, try to actually look at the data, look at the evidence, and, and come to a real conclusion. Right, first, going off of that, it's always important to acknowledge that you will not always be right in life. You will be wrong. That includes your political beliefs. We've all been wrong, it will we'll all be wrong again. <laughs> On the topic of media slash news organizations, I do think that national organizations like CNN, Fox, MSNBC, have their own special interests at hand. So they will push these negative narratives just to push up their ratings because that is what's popular to make a profit. So in my opinion, I think watching those news stations in general is can be very detrimental to the facts you get and to the stories you get because all three of those big channels tend to push their own separate idea of what you should think because they're owned by someone who wants to make more money than they already are. And I think we're talking about this on an individual level. When it, I think it's more of a system problem in our political system because uncivil discourse is coming from the top down. And I think where we have a day where like, it's a good day if our president doesn't call out a person individually by name on Twitter. I think as citizens, we should call on our leaders for accountability. And I think that's a way to make a good first step is to have it come from the top down because like people like us sitting in the room aren't creating the problem we are dealing with the lingering effects that come from the top levels of our political yep. leadership i absolutely agree just the other day lindsey graham and diane feinstein dared to hug each other that blew people's minds and people freaked out oh no god forbid that americans that disagree can be friends i think that you know we've seen escalating polarization I've only been alive since the Bush era, but from my from my opinion, it's from the Bush era on. Um, in the Bush era, you know, George Bush was an incompetent war criminal, and then you know, President Obama was a terrorist, and you know, he wasn't born in this country, and all this sort of stuff. And then President Trump is a horrific, misogynistic, corrupt racist, and it goes on and on. You know, Hillary Clinton was a war criminal. Mitt Romney beat dogs and hated women. 
Um, you just it's it goes on and on and on. I think that uh, you know politically and you know you're right. It does come from the top because it's our political leaders that say things, and then it's repeated, and then everybody believes it. And you have to take everything that politicians say with a grain of salt because every single politician has an agenda. First, going off of that, this is why we need ranked choice voting nationally. Um, and going, I think one thing, obviously we are all mourning the death still of Justice Ginsburg, but I think one thing that has come out of her death that has brought us all together is people have remembered her friendship with just former Justice Scalia, who were notably not the same ideologically, but it's now a discussion that people are having again because sadly of her passing, people now remember that the two of them were friends with vastly different ideals. And I think slowly but surely we're starting to realize that that's the America we should try to recreate instead of fighting with each other. I've got to push back a little bit. <laughs> I think hearing about Lindsey Graham and Diane Feinstein hugging, which I had not heard did they actually hug? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. At the end of the Amy Barrett hearings. Okay, they hug. Yes. Was it like an organic hug? Or Doesn't was it sound like staged? it. It was a Twitter <laughs> challenge. So, <laughs> it was pretty. It, it so basically what happened was Diane Feinstein thanked Lindsey Graham for how he ran the uh, hearings and basically said that it was, you know, it was the best um, confirmation hearing she'd ever taken part hmm. in. And then uh, at the end, she went up to like, I can't remember if she was trying to shake his hand or just wave, and he like hugged her and she hugged her back, or hugged him back. And uh, it was, a it actually seemed like a real moment, and it, people exploded. <laughs> people were not happy about it. I didn't hear about this. No, and I hear about everything. Um, <laughs> so, okay. You must have been drinking wine. <laughs> people were having fun without Abe and I there? Impossible. So, all right, so Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Scalia, friends, they would travel together. It, of course, it, it was, it's endearing. It was exciting to see that. I, I, you know, I, I can't, I, I'm not in favor of them yelling at each other. You know, this, this hug that allegedly happened between Lindsey Graham and Dianne Feinstein, great. The gravity of the issues that we're dealing with are life and death to a lot of people. And so I'm just, is, is, is seeing this made for TV hug you know, what we really should be aspiring for right now. And at what point can we realize that these are people with very different perspectives dealing with issues that are absolutely life and death to people. And so it's, it's maybe hard for some to see a hug and say, well, okay, everything is fine as long as they can get along when we, when we consider just the, the gravity of the situation, so I, again, I'm not, I'm not advocating for them to not hug. <laughs> I'm not advocating for more open fighting. But I, I, at the same time, I find myself maybe a little bit disappointed that 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 should be newsworthy. Maybe. I view these moments like. Feinstein and Graham hugging like unlikely animal friendships that you'll see on the internet, <laughs> like a dog, like a like a turtle riding a dog or something. <laughs> and I don't think it should be newsworthy, but at the same time, like we have to exist together. These issues are so important, but like they are sharing a workspace, and like, do you, like I don't know how else we can get around it. Like it's hard. Well, if it's okay, can I jump in here just to? And also get back to this concept of 
civility in politics too, right? Because there are many people who have been, many, many groups who have been left out of political and decision-making processes. And for them, when, when they hear the word civility, it means censorship, right? Because there isn't an opportunity to have respectful discussion because they haven't been respected. They haven't been respected and they haven't been part of the process. You know, we, we have this, these popular conceptions of civility, right, that, that is about respectful discourse. But what happens when we aren't on the same page, right? When we aren't, when there isn't an equal playing field, right? Like we want to aspire to make sure that everyone has equal opportunity, right? We want to address the, the defaults in access that many different groups in society face, right? To be able to participate and contribute um, to political and decision-making processes. But what do we do when there's a deficiency there? And what is the line between civility and conflict to ensure that more voices can actually be included in, that, in the process? First, just to respond quickly to Abe's point, in my opinion, I'd say 9.5 out of 10 politicians don't care about their constituents. They're there for the money, they're there for their 100 plus K salary, and then they go home. Um, and that's how it's been for a really long time, and it shows in America how long of a time, because productivity of the average citizen has increased twofold while wages have stagnated. If politicians really cared about their constituents like that, I think they would have passed any form of pay raise. I think you're right, politicians don't understand that a lot of these issues are life and death. And I think if they listened to their constituents, they would begin to realize that these healthcare, literally anything, major issues, race issues, gun issues, if they listened to their constituents, I think they'd start to realize. And they don't realize how it's life or death. And that's always been my issue. And that's why I've always believed you can't just blindly reelect your popular politician. You have to, they're, elect real people, not politicians who have been in Washington, D.C. for 60, 70 years. It's time to move on. And, and I think that's why we see America as such a low voter turnout, since, they, since so many groups feel left behind. I could see why groups wouldn't want to go out and vote if they feel like a candidate would not do anything for a group that has been playing on an uneven playing field for 200 odd years. And I think that um, this is why there should be more interaction between politicians and their constituents. Um, if you look at, you know, when election season rolls around, everybody all of a sudden is doing town halls. They're, you know, if they're in a competitive district, they're out, they're talking to their constituents, election day comes, they win, and they go away for two, four, or six years. Um, and they come back, come election season, they're out again. Politicians, there should be a, and it's not like it's an easy thing to do to get politicians to do this, but they should be out throughout the year. They should be talking to their constituents, whether that's town halls, they're door knocking and just walking around door to door and talking to people, say, hey, you know, what issues are important to you? They should actually be interactive, and most politicians aren't, especially if they're not in a competitive district. I will say that 
you know, Congressman Klein has done a lot of town halls in this in the sixth district since his election in 2018. He's been pretty accessible by voters. And I think that, you know, one of the best ways to make people who feel left behind is make it feel like they actually can interact with their political leaders and they actually have some way to talk to them and be like, look, you know, this is the issue that's important to me. Nobody's ever really listened to me before, but you know, I'm I'm thankful that you came and talked to me. I, I was door knocking yesterday and I knocked on somebody's door and he, I think he was, he was probably in like his early thirties, late twenties. And he thanked me for coming to his door because he said, you're the first person who ever actually like tried to earn my vote and ever actually tried to talk to me about it. And he was like, you know, that actually means something to me, regardless of if I vote for your candidate or not. And, you know, I, I think that if we had more interaction, like it shouldn't just be a, oh, political season is here. Let's go talk to our constituents. Politicians should actually make an effort to be connected. The whole point of the House of Representatives is so that politicians can be connected to their small population of people. And it often feels like they aren't because they only, it, it's like they take their voters for granted. They come to call on them, come on election day, and then they go to you know, Congress and they do the same thing they've done for 14 years. They sit there and they, oh, we have some debates and I might vote on this signature legislation, legislation and then I go home and then it's over. So I, I think that we should force our politicians almost, like if you don't talk to us, we're not gonna elect you again. We'll beat you out in a primary even if we have to because you should be here talking to all of us and oftentimes they're not. And just to give one example of what I was talking about, I feel the most prominent example of that just happens to be Representative Pelosi, who has not held a town hall, has not debated a primary challenger or even a election challenger in decades. And she just gets reelected and reelected. And if you can look over time how her policies have been corrupted from where she started in the House to where she's gotten, she doesn't listen to her constituents. And it's politicians like that, regardless of party, who, again, take their voters for granted thinking they can just get reelected. And once you hit that national profile, I feel like that's when it really starts to kick off. I agree with everything you guys are saying. I just wanna go back to Kara's point about like where the line is for civility. And I think civility is a reflection of privilege. And because we're all very privileged to be able to sit here in this room and all have very different ideological viewpoints and be able to talk respectfully. But we shouldn't force people to conform to the politics of respectability if they're being marginalized by the state. But I think the way that like people with privilege can help the marginalized communities out is to offer support and use your allyship to give them a seat at the table in political decision-making processes. And like that's easier said than done, but I think it's the only way to go forward. And also, politicians should talk to their constituents. <laughs> <laughs> It seems, seems simple, but you never know. Once someone's elected, they're spending the majority of their time fundraising, right, right for, for re-election. Right. And, and so that is also contributing to the problems of constituents. But also, um, Professor Lapira in political science here actually has a new report out about reforms for Congress. And one of the things that he notes is that there's decreased capacity in staff in Washington and, and that there's more staff actually out in the, in the fields. So, so the staff are kind of out here, but not, you know, that, that somehow is not mm -hmm. <laughs> enough to, to, to make that connection and make uh, members, individual members of Congress more effective for their constituents in the governing process, right? 
um, and that they actually have less capacity in their offices in D.C. to represent their constituents in districts. I, I thought that was a really interesting finding that he had and kind of a little counterintuitive to what we, we might expect, that that decrease in staff capacity in D.C. has, has contributed to, and the attention of Congress to fundraise, you know, to individual members of Congress to fundraising and the amount of fundraising they have to do when they should actually be governing. If anyone is looking to expand their staff in D.C., I am graduating in May of 2021. Great. So, you know, here we are on, on a college campus, certainly not a bubble. You know, we don't want a college campus to be a bubble. And so everybody here in this community, faculty, students, staff, administrators, community members, are operating in this very difficult political context and so it is possible for these external forces to influence a level of nastiness that can occur at a localized level what advice do you all have as student leaders to help make college campuses be a place that feels inclusive to everybody, where we can learn from each other, where we can have disagreements, and we can do it in a way where everybody is treated as an equal in these conversations. So I, I think that there's this concept of like indoctrination, and I think that while there are cases where I believe there is indoctrination of, of college students, I think that professors should have opinions um, and professors, professors should foster debate in their classrooms, um, particularly in you know, government political classes. You know, I've had professors that I know definitely didn't share my viewpoint on politics, but we still could have professional and you know, civil conversations about it. I think that it's important that we allow representation of all political values as well. Um, I think that everyone should have a voice, especially in a college campus, because there's so many diverse opinions. I mean, we have people coming from all over the country and all over the world that come to school here, and everyone should have a voice. So when you're you know, in classrooms, if somebody has an opinion, feel free to speak up about it, but just don't you know, try and trash their belief and their viewpoint. Uh, you have no idea what their life was like. You don't know why they have the viewpoint they do. You just heard their viewpoint. And like I said earlier, try and get to know people that have different views than you. I live with a Republican, somebody who's completely apathetic about politics, and a socialist. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's important that you have all kinds of viewpoints because funny enough, sometimes the things I hear from the person that's apathetic about it are probably what a lot of Americans feel like. Um, and, you know, you should, you should strive to actually hear different people's opinions. Yeah, well, I, I agree with the bulk of what you're saying. Um, I think on a college campus, we have like a particular set of circumstances. And I disagree with the point that like professors are indoctrinating their students with liberal ideas. Because if professors can't get their students to like read the syllabus or do the readings, like <laughs> they're not indoctrinating them politically. Uh, I think it's like a far stretch to say that. I've never, like, as someone who's taken so many political science classes, like, I, my professors have never tried to push their opinion on me. I think it's more of a talking point for people who aren't in college in this day and age. And then also with our specific environment of college campuses, we should respectfully engage with those in our community. <laughs> but like, we need to like 
figure out where the line is on our college campus for respectful discourse. I will have to disagree with the fact that you don't think professors can indoctrinate their students because, well, I don't think every, prof I think it's a minority of professors that have done that. I can name at least three professors that have tried to publicly just push whatever belief, whatever the popular issue of the day was, there was a comment for it that you could clearly see what they were trying to push. It wasn't every professor, it was definitely a small sliver, but I don't think it's a, a talking point. Maybe back in the day when, because my grandparents used that talking point, and maybe when they went to college, it was an issue. Maybe not anymore, but I definitely experienced it. I think people don't realize that when you get in people's face and just yell at them about stuff, <laughs> it actually pushes them farther away from your yep. opinion. You don't, you might radicalize somebody by doing that because then they're like, oh, this is what the other side is like. Okay, you know, maybe these people are right. When you scream and yell at somebody, it doesn't help your cause at all. It actually makes you look like a fool. We asked this question of all of our guests and we're gonna ask it of all three of you. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? Uh, I have three words that I believe will strengthen our democracy. Ranked choice voting. I think that one of the things that you could do to strengthen our democracy, vote. Actually vote, but like I said earlier, be informed about your vote. Don't vote because your parents vote that way or your friends do or because you always have. Vote based on, you know, do research, learn about these candidates and actually create an informed opinion about it. An uninformed populace is the greatest threat to a society. And if you know people aren't informed and don't do their research, regardless of what that research you know leads them to their opinion, it, it's death. So everybody should vote, but have an informed opinion about voting. I don't even know where to start with this one. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a lot of broader, like system level reforms that could make democracy in America better. But I don't know, it's hard to like sit here and like think about how the person's vote in Wyoming has like three times the power as someone in California. But the system is intentionally designed that way. So I think it's hard to like reconcile like the inequities that are like built into our democracy. But on an individual level, I agree with Wyatt that you should be informed and vote regardless of who you vote for. I think our system really disincentivizes third party participation. And so it pushes it into like this two party system and where it's a lot easier to get polarized. It's a lot easier to paint the opposition as horrible people because like it's ha one half versus the other and not a million different perspectives coming together to be like to live together in a society. So on an individual level, be involved in politics, do research, vote, register other voters and like contact your representatives and hold your leaders accountable for things that you dislike and for things that violate democratic norms. Just to follow up on the multiple parties, I think that would 1,000,000% strengthen our democracy because the top democracies, the strongest democracies around the world, England, Denmark, even Israel. Israel has 10 political parties. Maybe you don't need that many, but they have one of the strongest democracies because they all have civil discourse because they're all different opinions. I think much more political parties would definitely help our cause to strengthen our democracy. 
Thank you all so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation and look forward to having another one. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Caitlin Waltmeyer, a senior media arts and design major. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about us at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.